0: So, this evening we're looking at the final passage from 2 Peter chapter 3. You can find it in our church Bibles on page 1224. 2 Peter 3 verses 11 to 18. What sort of lives should we live? I wonder what some of the younger ones here will end up doing. Maybe you'll become astronauts or lawyers, or vicars, or retail managers, or singers, or footballers, or engineers, or inventors, or nurses, or writers. It's fascinating, and I look forward to finding out. But Peter asks a slightly different question. Not what will you do, but what sort of person will you be? What will be your character? It's more important because we are bigger than what we do. We are how we live. And 2 Peter really deals with this question of what sort of people should we be like? And there are a whole string of things in the verses that we've just read, but I am just going to focus on three. And there could have been others I could focus on. And the first thing is we're called to be holy people. Peter writes, what sorts of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness without spot or blemish? It sounds so boring. We think of holy people as pious and aloof sitting cross-legged on some mountain somewhere It's okay if you're into that sort of thing. Or we think of them as people who are self-righteous, holier-than-thou people. But it's very different to the vision of holiness that we're given in this letter. On the negative side, holiness in 2 Peter is not about giving in to every desire or lust that we have, It's about not rejecting authority simply because it is authority. It's about not rubbishing things we don't understand. It's about not, and I like this one, I like how he describes it, it's about not speaking bombastic nonsense. And it's about not living lives that are controlled by the desire for money or sex that's negative. But Peter describes also what it's like. It's about goodness, knowledge. That's really interesting. It's about self-control, endurance, perseverance. It's about stickability and faithfulness, especially when things get tough. And it's about mutual affection. It's about heart friendship and love. If you go on the website, you can find all the references to all these particular bits. It's about being the best friend that you can ever be to another person. It's about delighting in who God has made them to be and in what they can become. It is respecting them as a unique human being with a potential eternal destiny. It's about being loyal, open, honest about our failings, transparent, utterly reliable committed to the absolute best for them. Not just here and now, not just for the next 70 or 80 years, but for eternity. And that might mean encouraging them, it might mean also challenging them. Holiness, as Peter describes it, is not boring. And secondly, we're called to be people of hope. We are people who are looking to the future, to the day when jesus returns when death and destruction and pain and suffering and evil are wiped out 2 peter 3:13 in accordance with his promise we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness rightness is at home we need hope to live If you're a football fan, let's say you have the misfortune to be an Ipswich Town fan, you need hope. The season would be impossible if there was no hope. No hope of them winning any game, let alone of getting promotion. It doesn't need to be a big hope. That would be being foolish but it can be a little hope. Maybe we won't get relegated. Maybe we'll finish mid-league. Maybe we'll get to the playoffs, even to the quarterfinal of the FA Cup. If there is no hope, then the season is pointless, literally. But if there is hope, However small, there's a reason for the season and there's a reason for keeping on going Saturday after Saturday. We need a hope to live. William Barclay, in his commentary on 2 Peter, tells of three inscriptions on pagan tombstones which show us what happens when there is no hope. The first says... I was nothing, I am nothing, so thou who art still alive, eat, drink, and be merry. It's what we call hedonism. Because there is no future hope, we live for this world, and we live for ourselves, and it makes perfect sense. The second says, Once I had no existence... Now I have none. I am not aware of it, it does not concern me. Without hope we do nothing. And the third says Caridas, what is below? Deep darkness. But what of the paths upward? All a lie. Then we are lost. Without hope we despair. The Christian hope that one day Jesus will return, that it will be the end of space and time as we know it, that one day death and lies and shame and suffering will be gone, and that we will live lives of peace and joy and fulfillment and abundance and love and laughter, that we will see God and be changed into the likeness of his Son and everything will be right is a hope which will transform our lives. We will want to prepare ourselves for that life then. And the more that hope takes a grip on us, the less we will live for the things of this world, and the more we will live for the things of that world. But the hope that Jesus will return is, I suspect, actually harder to believe, even than the idea that Ipswich might get promotion next season. Peter is aware of that. You see, he's writing to people who others have come in and who've said, there is no future hope. Give it up. Live for this world, live for yourself, because this world is all that there is. But that is why he's writing. He's saying to people, this is the promise of God. This hope is real. It may be bigger than our minds can grasp, but it is real. And earlier in this letter, he's reminded us of something that happened when Jesus was alive. You see, in chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, he tells of how he saw the glory of Jesus. Peter, James, and John went up a mountain with Jesus, and Jesus was transfigured. They saw him. They saw him as one who was bigger than time. He was speaking with Moses and Elijah, both of whom had lived centuries before. He was bigger than creation. He shone with the light that created physical life. And they heard the voice from heaven declaring that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. I've often wondered why Peter chose that particular incident to tell us about. In the New Testament, outside the Gospels, it's the only specific incident in Jesus' life, apart from his death, resurrection and post-resurrection appearances, that we are told about. Well, I can imagine Peter about to be taken to his place of execution, probably in chains, giving his instructions to the person who wrote to Peter, and almost certainly to Peter was not actually written by the hand of Peter, but by what they called in those days an amanuensis, a secretary, because we know that really by just looking at the language that's used in 2 Peter. It is so, so very, very different from the language used in 1 Peter. And it's not the sort of language that, that the Apostle Peter really would have used. But that's no reason for saying that it doesn't come with the full authority of Peter, because there are times when I'll say, ask Jackie and say, oh, Jackie, could you write a letter to, to, to somebody um, and she'll write the letter. It's in her words, but it's saying exactly what I want it to say. And I'm happy to then sign it and say, yes, that comes, if you like, with my authority. So here's Peter, probably unable to write, giving his instructions to the person. And he says to them, tell them about the transfiguration, because it's an example of the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an example. And because he wants to reassure the Christians to whom he's writing about the the hope that we have of the coming of Jesus, and he wants to remind us, and possibly himself as he faces death, that happened, and it blew my mind. And one day he will come again, and it will blow your mind. But that is our hope Life is not just a drag from one high to the next high to the next high to the next high till we fall off our perch. Life has a purpose. It has a goal. We have a reason to live. It's why it's worth slogging it out here, persevering even when it feels it's all about this world or when people mock us because we believe in Jesus. We have a hope a holy people, a hopeful people. Thirdly, a humble people. What sort of people should we be? We should be people who live under the authority of the word of God, even when it tells us stuff that we don't want to hear. I've been recently flicking through um, uh, some of the writings of Richard Hooker. He lived between 1554 and 1600, and he's one of my theological heroes. Well, he is when I can understand some of the stuff that he's actually writing. Um, There's a debate about him, but I think the sort of common consensus now is that he was really a writer of the Reformation. He was standing up for the authority of Scripture. But he's saying along with the authority of Scripture, you have to put it alongside tradition and reason. And people talk about him being the sort of person who sort of had this idea of, if you like, the three, the the, 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 the stool with three legs, scripture, tradition, and reason. Although actually more recently people say, no, it's not the three-legged stool, it's the tricycle that's more important for him. The front wheel, the key key wheel, the leading wheel is scripture, and the other two wheels are are tradition uh, and reason. But but actually, it seems to me he's saying what, what, what Peter is saying here. You know, I love verses 15 and 16. Peter tells us that Paul's letters are to be considered scripture. In other words, they have authority. That's interesting. Because actually, in one of those letters, Paul tells us how he confronted Peter when Peter was wrong. But Peter also says, and this is a bit that I quite like, that what Paul writes is hard to understand in places, and we need to be careful how we interpret those passages and other parts of the Bible, because to be honest, we can make the Bible say stuff that God would never want to say. And that's why we need the church, the people of God from all eras and all cultures to help us understand the Bible. It's why we need the creed, a sort of control to our understanding. It's why we need the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's why we also need common sense. We really do need to have a degree of humility when we come to understanding the Bible. I have every confidence that this is the word of God. But I do seriously need to question my interpretation of it, especially when others have interpreted it or do interpret a passage in a different way to how I interpret it. And so Richard Hooker writes about the, to those who were so insistent they had the right interpretation. He wrote this, Think ye are men. Deem it not impossible for you to err, sift impartially your own hearts, whether it be force of reason or vehemency of affection which hath bred and still doth feed these opinions in you. In other words, place yourself under the authority of the Word of God, but be humble and do not twist it to make it mean what you personally want it to mean. I'm going to finish here. There's so much more that could be taken from these verses. So, so much more. Please read them when you get home. Think about them. Pray about them. But remember what is really important is not what you do but how you live. And Peter urges us. Be humble, be hopeful, be holy. Father God, help us to come before you. And would you work in us to make us holy, to give us hope and to humble us before you that we may give glory to your name. Amen.